This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts and available wherever you get your videos, as long as those places are Facebook and YouTube. I'm Matt Robeson. And, you know, it's kind of a thing in podcasting to announce you're going to have an emergency podcast. We've had emergency podcasts a lot on Beyond Politics because things come up that just incoming from the world around us that we want to deal with quickly and get some thought and analysis out to the world as fast as we can. The war in Ukraine has sort of bypassed the idea of an emergency podcast because every day is a little bit of an emergency. There's obviously heartbreaking, wrenching images and news coming from the war zone itself. And then there are also a, a constant stream of new policy developments. The latest, of course, announced uh, just yesterday, as we record this on a Wednesday, was the imposition of a ban on Russian oil. And it, it seems like we, you can't get caught up in that kind of daily emergency incoming stream. What you really need to do is take a step back from it and try and understand the context and, and analyze where are we now and where might we be going. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. So I would call this a semi-emergency podcast. We're going to try very hard to just take in everything that's happened recently and try and fit it into that broader framework of understanding. There's no one better seriously to do this than our previous guest, Max Bergman. Max is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, but before that, he served in the U.S. Department of State at a number of different positions. He was on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, and most important, he's an expert on Europe and the region that encompasses Ukraine and the interface between the two and the, the power and military might of uh, the European military, which is probably the, the most important factor to weigh in, in the ongoing situation in Europe. And so, uh, Max, welcome back to Beyond Politics. And we're, we're really glad to be able to benefit from your expertise. No, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the, the great. Well, I richly deserved and I really appreciate it. Uh, let's let's just start at the top with the breaking news here. I mean, it's it's no longer quite breaking, but I think Americans are still very much digesting the meaning of the Russian oil ban that President Biden announced yesterday. There are some analysts who say, well, this isn't going to have that much of an impact domestically. Some who say this is going to have more impact than you'd think, especially emotionally in the context of already rising gas prices. And then there's the bigger question, which weighs into your expertise of what impact is that? Is it really going to have on Russia and, and on Europe? So what was your reaction to the Russian oil ban announcement? Well, I, I, my reaction is I think it, it sent another signal to, to Vladimir Putin, and it's sort of taking the dial on sanctions and turning it up a little bit, but also leaving the option to turn it up a lot. And the U.S. had avoided going after Russia's energy sector, U.S. and Europe, because, you know, part of the initial bout of sanctions that we don't want to necessarily cause a global economic calamity in which that then causes a massive recession here at home. So we, want to, we wanted to be able to hit Russia economically, sanction them, then sort of take a breather, see how things were playing out, and then you know, look to turn the screws. And this is, I think, part of turning that, turning that screw. Because I think what happened in the initial round of sanctions, just to please sort of back up way back to uh, you know, roughly a week and a half ago, right. when, which feels a very long time ago, the initial sanctions where we that were announced, and then the Europeans, I think, were incredibly shocked by what happened. I think there's a lot of preparation with them about this is going to happen, this is going to happen, exchanges between the US and Europe. But really, it's all a hypothetical exercise, you know? And so the Europeans were looking very carefully at sanctions, they had working groups, everything was being set up. But then when it when Russia is actually pouring tanks over the border in Ukraine. And we have to remember from Berlin, it's like a two hour flight to Kiev, right? This is, wow. this is very close. That, that changed everything, right? It changed the outrage, the shock, the horror felt in European capitals. So suddenly Europeans 
turn the dial way up. America and some, the U.S. was in some ways trying to catch up. And what we've seen is that the Russian economy has, has just been effectively destroyed. I mean, the, the stock market's been closed because they can't reopen because the, it will collapse. The ruble has, has basically is like not being able to be sold as a currency anymore. So then you do that action and then you need to see what's the impact on us. Like what, what's the impact on the global economy? Are banks going to start to fail in Europe? Are we going to have another Lehman Brothers that we cause this sort of shock to an economic system? Then is a Lehman Brothers going to collapse in some European bank that then leads to a collapse in a New York bank that then causes all this sort of economic turmoil? But that thus far doesn't really look like it happened. And so I think that's sort of a long way of getting to where we are now on oil, where I think the Biden administration, you know, has people in the room, has the Treasury Department, Commerce Department, it's Council of Economic Advisors, State Department, even the Pentagon, I think probably in some of this as well. The convening meetings where there's like, okay, how do we how do we approach the energy sector if we wanted to? What would be the steps? What would be the impact? How do we assess it? So I think we saw a lot of internal meetings over the last week, and I think they came to this decision to to dial up and and ban Russian oil to sort of turn the dial up on on Vladimir Putin and send a, him a real signal that energy is now on the table. And I think they probably did so with some confidence that that they could minimize some of the economic impact to to Americans here. Well, in in that answer, I heard a few threads that I'd I'd love to tie together because one thing that I think you can provide listeners that I don't think they're they're getting in all of the bevy of news and analysis that's out there is an understanding of what it's like inside the room. This is something I heard a lot from from one of my mentors in grad school who was a former higher up at the State Department is that. That's that's really what it's all about is being in the room, the room where it happened uh, yeah. per, the, per the musical Hamilton. How is the decision made? What, what's the thinking? What's, so could you give us a little bit of a window into that process from your experience at the Department of State? How does one, how are your colleagues, and I, I want to be clear here, I'm not asking you to share any confidential yeah. information that you may be gleaning from current, you know, from colleagues who are still there or maybe inside the White House, but maybe just give us a, a general sense of what have those folks, your counterparts, still at the State Department, the Council of Economic Advisors, the White House, been doing in recent weeks? How do you prepare information for the president to support a decision one way or the other? How do you give a sense of what the risks and downsides are? How are you coordinating with European allies and counterparts and, and people on Capitol Hill to to make sure that everyone's rowing in the same direction. Yeah, so 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 great great question, and you know I think the the glory of government is sort of endless meetings, and in that in some ways business too. Well, by the way, I've been yeah, on both sides of that equation. Yeah. It's it's the same everywhere. So you know I I was not at the the highest end of the totem pole when I was in the State Department, but but the basically the way it functions, the way it works is right now there are countless interagency, it's called interagency White House meetings or interagency meetings where the White House is going to convene a meeting between all the various different agencies that have a stake in this issue. And so there's conversations happening on the defense side, on military assistance, what we should be doing, conversations on the on, on sanctions, conversations on, on what we could be doing on the humanitarian side. And so each of the kind of senior directors or the White House officials that that cover a various portfolio. So in this case, there's, you know, will be someone in charge of sanctions or the economy. And maybe it's initially starts out with at a lower rung, like their deputy. So, you know, fairly, not like mid-level people convene a meeting of other mid-level people from the State Department, from the Treasury Department, from the Commerce Department. But here's the thing. Oftentimes these mid-level people, quote unquote mid-level, aren't like, it's not that they're young, it's just that they're not as senior, but they are oftentimes the experts, right? So these are the experts in getting together. And so state will sort of come and say, okay, we need to turn the screws more on Russia. Energy is the strategic sector. The, if we, we need to lead here, if we take action, the Europeans will follow. This is really critical that we do this. Hmm. Treasury will come and say, okay, okay. Some concerns here about, you know, what the impact of this will be. We'll have to sort of assess, you know, what will you know, how will we make this work? Probably someone from the energy department is there talking about providing all this analysis of, 
where our oil comes from. It, you know, could we go and get other supplies to like Venezuela or, or the, the Gulf countries? Then the State Department is then like, okay, well, let me go talk to, this is maybe the, the, the Europe person or the energy person at the State Department may be involved in this. But now you got to bring in the Middle East people, the people who work on the Middle East, the people that work on Venezuela and Latin America. So, and so oftentimes there'll be a meeting and then you realize that there's like eight other things that you need to find out. So you go back, you're writing lots of papers, lots of memos about like what happened in that meeting. So the job of the White House official is to basically like take notes and then write up a summary of that meeting. That summary goes, gets sent up, gets sent around. So people are reading it. And then what happens, you start sort of flushing out you know, action plans, ideas of maybe we can do this. This is, here's what we think about this. Or maybe there's four different options. And that gets kicked up to what would be called like a deputies meeting. So basically not Tony Blinken, who's the secretary of state, but maybe Wendy Sherman or Toria Newland, who's the deputy secretary and undersecretary attend. So then the layers that are senior and they have all these discussions. And sometimes there's multiple deputies meetings where then the, the, the people who are the experts are sitting behind these people. Now, usually in the room, maybe it's happening on Zoom now, mm. uh, but they're sitting behind these people, whispering in their ear, telling them, and, and there'll be a back and forth. And then that maybe they sort of finalize the like two options and that will then get kicked up for what is called a principles meeting, which will then have the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, oftentimes the president will join, but then it's, you know, sometimes the secretary of state's busy, like he's in Moldova, and then the deputy secretary joins too. So this, the, what you're seeing is just sort of a layer of constant decision-making, constant sort of assessments. Sometimes the president's like, I don't like any of these options, bring me more. And then it kicks back down. And, and that, that, you know, just to maybe provide an example, a real world example of this, this is basically what happened when I was in the State Department, when it came to the decision to provide Javelin missiles to Ukraine in 2014, mm. where, Russia hadn't fully invaded Ukraine yet. I mean, they had invaded, but they hadn't done an operation like we're seeing now, which is to try to fully occupy the country. And so there was a lot of concerns about if we were going to provide this like really powerful offensive weapon, what would be the implications? And then there would be this sort of crisis where it looked like Russia was going to actually invade. And there'd be all these meetings and the decision would be, well, well, how fast can we get the Javelin missile there? And we would say, well, we looked at it and it could be there in like two months. You know, that's about as fast as we could actually deliver these things uh, to the field and train the Ukrainians. And the decision would be like, well, that's, that's not fast enough because there's a crisis now. So we're not going to make a decision. Not. Two months later, there'd be a crisis in Ukraine, crisis with Russia. Be like, how fast can we get Javelin there? It'd be like two months. And it would be like, ah, oh, not fast enough. And it would kick back down. Again, what other options would be there? So it's, it's this constant. And so there can be a lot of frustration in this process. I think it's, the Obama period was very legalistic in some ways. So mm. it could, there's a lot of memos, decision-making could be sort of very thorough, but then very slow, which then can be very bureaucratic. There's advantage to that. You look at everything at every angle, but then if everyone gets a say, sometimes you muddle things down a little bit. So mm. it's sort of a long answer, but that that's, so what I think is happening now is there's a lot of meetings going on, a lot of assessing. People are trying to throw out new ideas. And, and that's, that's, I think, I think what we're seeing is, is, you know, someone had a good idea on oil or had an idea on oil. It, it then sort of matriculated up. What other options? Okay, this, let's assess it. And here we go. What really stands out to me, and I, I was part of a discussion, we do a, a roundtable discussion show as well. And we were getting into this a little bit in our last show that it really does, everything you just described strikes such a contrast with what we're seeing emerge from photos out of Russia, where Vladimir Putin is physically removed. He's physically set aside from his advisors, from the people around him, literally at the end of a table, 25 feet away from his counterparts or his advisors. This kind of lines up with, with some information that's leaked out or, or been provided by Senator Rubio that there is a feeling that he really is becoming isolated and, and maybe isn't quite on, as on top of things mentally as he used to be. But as much as what you just described, to some degree, does sound like a little bit of a bureaucratic morass, it also, it also displays one of the real strengths of our system, which is there's this exchange of ideas. There's looking at things from all angles. There's consideration of risks and downsides. And, you know, 
as much as it does sound like a real sausage factory kind of behind the scenes, yeah. what you've gotten, at least my impression, and I'm not the, nearly the expert that you are, but what you've gotten out of this White House over the last month or so that this situation has been brewing and then, and then broken is a very carefully calibrated set of policies where they've, they've been coordinated with European allies. They've shown leadership. They've been not too far out in front of the breaking news, but, but not behind it by yeah. that far either. And it seems to me like more or less the White House has, has gotten this pretty right so far. And it's a testament to all of that work that you described that's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's exactly right. Now, you know, the process I described, right, let's just say there was no crisis and you were trying to sort of push something that was totally new and dramatic, right. like cutting, you know, let's say Putin never invaded uh, Ukraine and, you know, it was just sort of a normal, we're in a normal march. And someone at the State Department was like, you know, we should be cutting off our oil to Russia. And maybe someone at the White House thought that would be a good idea. There'd be, you know, maybe there's a meeting, but it's not going to go anywhere, right? Mm. And so part of what is is critical is the leadership from the top to emphasize what the priorities are, where the direction is, what the purpose is. And that I think is really clear. This is an administration that's like, we need options to impose costs on Russia. Let's figure it out, identify them. We're willing to accept some costs here at home. And then you send a demand signal down. And so people work really hard. They, they know that what they produce will then go up and that's gonna to lead to a decision. Where I think the frustration really lies where the, is when the morass comes is that if, if there isn't that kind of trajectory mm. uh, of real sort of push or energy. And so I think you're right. And so what we see is the strength of a democratic system actually. Right, right. That in the, the failure of the Putin system of the of just having, you know, a guy that's on, that is afraid of his own people, frankly. Right, yeah, right. I mean, the Russian generals can be tested and are vaccinated. So why are they sitting so far away from the table? It raises some questions about, but, but no one is, is sort of challenging Putin internally. But, I, I th but don't you think that that also shows that we are subject to the same risks, the same dangers. Look, we just came out of an administration that put that on full display. What happens when you yeah. get a powerful country, a leader with autocratic tendencies? I mean, in Putin's case, it's like not just tendencies, right? But, you know, in Donald Trump's case, they're, they're, they're definitely out there. And who shoots from the hip and, yeah. you know, provides. And, you know, look, as, as was well documented by Michael Lewis uh, in his book, The Fifth Risk, one of the worst things that Donald Trump did was to hollow out the leadership of all of these agencies that are responsible for this apparatus that you just described in, in such glowing detail and to remove what's our greatest asset, what's our greatest strength, which is our ability to think, exchange ideas, analyze data, get access to information. And it just, it, it's something that people out there will, will never appreciate. They'll, that you'll never see it on the campaign trail. It's like, oh, you've seen what he's done to the executive agencies. But I think experts like you really appreciate that difference. And that is sort of the core backbone of, of our strength in America. I, I, just one other angle on this to ask you about, and we're gonna have to take a break in like a minute here, but how do you read? I, I assume that you read beyond tea leaves of what emerges in the news, just based on your training and expertise. So, you know, for example, speaking from Moldova over the weekend, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken suggested to CNN that the U.S. could try to get European countries in on this Russian oil boycott. But I imagine that when you see a piece of news like that, this is not a guy who's shooting from the hip. This is probably something I'm guessing here that has been prepped at maybe the deputies level. It's been talked about. You know, you're not going to throw something like that out there unless it's like it's like cross-examination in a in a criminal trial. It's like you're not going to ask a question unless you know for darn sure what the answer is. Probably there's a lot more going on. That's tip of the iceberg stuff. What do you what do you suspect has been going on behind the scenes that's that underlies an announcement like that? Well, I I think you're exactly right that when when Secretary of State Lincoln says something, it's definitely there's an intent behind it, uh, and there's a lot of thought and planning. And I think part of this part of that comment was to convey to the Europeans we're seriously thinking about doing this, and we're probably going to do it, and to put a little political pressure on them to follow suit. 
and I think there's been queer collaboration behind the scenes. Well, one thing I will note is that there's sort of a famous incident where a Secretary of State did sort of shoot from the hip. And that was my old boss, uh, John Kerry, who in a uh, press conference with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov about uh, Syria and Assad's use of chemical weapons was asked a question by a reporter, is there anything Assad could do to sort of prevent the US from attacking? And he was like, well, you, could, you know, they could get rid of their chemical weapons. And Lavrov picked up on it. And then there was this huge effort by the United States government. It didn't fully eliminate Syria's chemical weapons program, but I think got more than 90% of the chemical weapons out. But that was uh, an aside comment that then led to sort of a, an abrupt shift. And I wasn't working on it directly, but people in my office were. And we're suddenly like, wait, what? What is happening? And it led to this sort of massive effort where, you know, dominated the next six months or years of, of people's lives. So sometimes often comments do happen and, and, and change the course of events. I think in, in this case, there's, this is one of those instant uh, periods where the amount of collaboration between the US and Europe, I think is just so extensive. And I think, I think right now there's, there's probably officers in the State Department that are communicating more with some European counterparts than they are with like their wives and children. And, and they're, you know, exchanging emails constantly, they're talking all the time, but they are like, basically operating like they're on the same team now. And so I think that's where we've seen this sort of really intense, tight level of coordination and collaboration. And I think the one thing we also have to realize is that, and I think we, is that Europe is also a very complex place as well. Uh, especially the European Union, where, you know, 27 countries and how they make decisions and how it, it's, it, and so, you know, and Russia is a lot more important to their economy, their energy sector, and also trade and, and economic exchanges, banking sectors, a lot more intertwined. And I think the remarkable thing here is, like, the economic losses, like, we're concerned about rising prices of the pump. There's real economic losses that are happening in Europe right now. Uh, tens of billions of lost economic activity is impacting the European economy. But instead of sort of backing down as the sort of weak Europeans, as this sort of cliche goes, we're seeing Europe continue to ratchet up the pressure. And the th one of the things that we've seen, I think it's going to be announced today or this week or it's happening, is that the EU is meeting. You know, they have these sort of regular bi biannual summits within with leaders of the European Union to really move to get off Russian gas as soon as possible. And to reduce their Russian energy dependence, and and you know there, there's tremendous action being taken on the European level, and and that's all being done. I think so. I think Blinken's comments were partly, probably prompted or coordinated, maybe with some European leaders to push other European leaders. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't we don't always see. Hmm. Well, you know, first of all, just want to draw out from your last comment how inane the suggestion from former President Trump is that somehow things would have been better in this situation under him. That level of tight coordination, when he had given the Heisman, you know, the full stiff arm to our NATO and European allies over the course of his presidency, the idea that we could achieve anything like what we're achieving right now and the kind of leadership that America is showing once again in the world is it's laughable. I'd laugh if it weren't a subject that should make one cry and if it weren't so deadly serious and important. But speaking of coordination with the European Union and the difficulty of them coordinating among themselves, this has been a topic that you have been on for a while now. You have been one of the loudest uh, and most cogent voices on the idea of, hey, Europe, you really need to pull together not only economically, not only politically, but mil militarily. There, I got that word out. And you you kind of re-upped that argument in a recent article for Politico Europe. And the title is, The EU Should Borrow Together Once Again, This Time for Common Defense. So what are you arguing around that? And why is that so important heading into the future? So I think, you know, if we look at the last week and a half, probably one of the most dramatic things that actually has happened, happened last Sunday when German Chancellor Olaf basically reversed 75 years of German foreign policy in some ways by announcing an utterly massive increase in German defense spending. And I think we sort of wonder, the German military was in a, in a very terrible state where their planes can't, couldn't fly, their ships didn't sail, they didn't have the right weaponry. It was, it was a disaster. I like to compare it and think of it as like our Amtrak. It kind of works, no. but, like, but a country like Germany should be able to operate 
like it's it's tank their tanks should be able to 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 drive and function and that's not wasn't really the case so what we saw was a dramatic sea change with germany essentially in the next five years is likely to become a major global military power if not the most the strongest country in europe could potentially on its own rival russia just in its 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 pure military capability i mean the this was the whole thing the amount of money that the German, you know, how rich Germany is, how powerful it is, and how little it invested in its military, and how badly it invested what it did invest. That's a sea change. And that matters for all of Europe, for the European Union itself, because Germany sees itself fundamentally as a European power and sees its military. And this is sort of different than France, who, you know, likes, has sort of a strong national esprit de corps attachment to its military. Germany sees its military, I think, fundamentally as with upholding the European Union. Now, what my key said in Politico was basically that's a, that's great. more national spending is good. But here's the problem: we have 27 EU member states, 27 states that are operating their own military. Just think about the you know their own national defense industries. So Europe has way too many tanks. They have way too many vehicles. Way too many different types of planes, and so it's a mess. So you know, there's if you add up the number of people that Europe has in uniform. It's the second largest army in the world after China, but it just mm, doesn't wow. project that sort of combat power. And it spends actually quite a bit of money on defense, roughly around 150 to 200 billion euros. So it spends a decent amount and it's about to spend more. But so what I was advocating is it's time for the EU itself. So you have the member states, but then the EU and Brussels. It's a little bit like if you think about the European Union as having sort of like the US with 50 states, Europe has 27. But it's that if you left foreign policy to each of our individual states and then had Washington be incredibly weak, sort of like Articles of Confederation, if we never really had a constitution. And Brussels is beginning to get more power and to strengthen. This is part of the reason why the UK left. Uh, I actually think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing for the United States. But I think the next, the, the, front, the final frontier basically for European integration is defense policy, is foreign and defense. And think about in, instead of spending all this money separately in 27 militaries, if the EU went and said, okay, what are the capabilities that Europe needs? So it's not dependent on the US. So, you know, countries like France to operate in Africa and the Sahel need US air tankers that can refuel fighter jets, the US air transport, our, our lift and logistics capabilities, our ISR, our, our drones. Okay. So the EU could spend 100 billion euros, borrow that money, and buy that equipment. It could just do that. And then it would basically operate them as if this was an EU service, right? An EU air transport service for other militaries, and it could put them under the command of other European member states. And the EU could basically begin to solve some of the real gaps and capabilities that Europe has, that NATO has. And I think the long, and I think we might see some of that this week. There's a big summit happening in Marseille that I'm sort of watching out of the corner of my eye as I'm focused on many different things. But I think we, we could see some real movement here. But why this matters to the United States is not just because like, oh, it would be good if Europe spent a little bit more on defense. It's that we have a real strategic problem that, that Russia now clearly identifying itself as a major threat to the world order, to, to Europe, cannot be ignored. And I think the Biden administration came in office actually hoping to ignore it, to establish a stable and predictable relationship with Russia, to sort of arc Russia to the side. Why? So we could focus on China. And China is sort of, the, as the Pentagon describes it, is the pacing, the pacing threat, that it is expanding, it is growing economically and militarily. And so to really keep up, we need to focus more attention there. But with Europe, in, in a security crisis, we can't. And if you think back to kind of the Powell doctrine of America needs to fight and win two regional wars, well, this is two wars potentially, if, if that hopefully never comes to that, against two superpowers, against two military mm. superpowers. So, so we need Europe to become a major global power to not only help us help handle Europe and European security, but also to just handle global security. And Europe is an economy, the EU's economy is the same size as ours. So Europe becoming more of a military power means it's going to become more of a, a global power. And that's going to be good for us in handling China, in handling Russia, and handling any threat around the world. Well, speaking of 
trying to handle the, the current threat in coordination with our European allies. Unfortunately, a, a lot of analysis, maybe the best coming from you, that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is proving to be a strategic disaster for Russia, for the Kremlin, and for Vladimir Putin specifically. And in a way, as much as, of course, I'm rooting for that outcome, because who isn't rooting as hard as they can for Ukraine these days, except for maybe Tucker Carlson. It also makes me concerned that the very fact that the situation is so bad might make it more dangerous because it seems to not leave much of an off-ramp for Russia, much of an off-ramp for Putin. Isn't it harder now to have some kind of a face-saving pathway, a compromise that Putin could could glom onto, you know, so for example, Elliot Cohen, a former State Department official, writes in The Atlantic that, and I'm quoting here, Western strategy should rest on three pillars, vigorous and imaginative military support to Ukrainian regular and irregular forces, sanctions that will hobble the Russian economy, and construction of a militarily powerful European alliance that can secure the border with Russia as long as that country remains a menace. But if those three things are achieved, if we get where Mr. Cohen says we need to go, doesn't that just menace Russia and make them feel ever more isolated and kind of backed into a corner? And is there any room for a way out at that point? So it, it, it's a great question. And let me just say, I'm pretty pessimistic about finding an off-ramp for Russia. And I also think one of the challenges here is that it's not necessarily up to us to figure out what the off-ramp is, because I, th I think ultimately this is going to be up to the Ukrainians who are in back-channel talks with the Russians constantly. There's this sort of misnomer that when the shooting stops, the talking, when the shooting starts, that like you stop talking, but that no, that's not the case. Diplomacy never stops. And so there are back-channel talks between the Ukrainians and the Russians. Now, if the Ukrainians make a decision to sort of agree to the Russian demands of like recognizing Crimea and the Donbass and foregoing NATO membership. And President Zelensky says, this is, yes, you know, for the sake of peace to avoid further casualties, we'll agree to never join NATO and we'll agree to, you know, the loss of Crimea in the Donbass. If he makes that decision, I think, you know, the U.S. should then fully back it. I think then we can talk to the Russians about potentially de-escalating some of our sanctions. I do think one of the things I think the administration hasn't done a great job of and should do a better job of is really conveying that our sanctions serve a purpose here and that if Russia de-escalated, if it agreed to a ceasefire, if it started to withdraw its forces, that we would ratchet down these sanctions and make that clear the, to the Russian people that the sanctions exist because Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine. So I think that is the off-ramp that's sort of available for us that we can offer to tone down our economic i don't think fully eliminate because some of russia's actions i think will will never sort of get back to where we were pre-crisis you know dial down the pressure if russia were to show take some positive steps i i'm just not optimistic that that's going to be the case because look this fight has gone way better for the ukrainians than i think anyone anticipated i think and so i think there's some confidence amongst the ukrainians that they're in a, a pretty they have or have are in pretty good shape. And so, you know, the Russians are probably looking at us and being like, we're not in great, but we can still ratchet up the violence really significantly. And that I think is where, unfortunately, I think where we're headed, where the Russians are frustrated, they don't really see a way out. Putin has has caused a total disaster for him himself at home. Everyone, at home, you know, thinks this war is like, he's, he's basically lost the war because there's no way he's going to be able to pacify Ukraine. But if he doesn't, if Ukraine doesn't agree to demands that I think are gonna be almost politically impossible for Zelensky to agree to, in which the Ukrainians feel that they have the kind of military upper hand, I think I think we're gonna see Putin pushed further. I think we're gonna see a lot of bombings of, of cities and more atrocities. And I think that the Russians will do that, hoping Zelensky will, will cave. But then I think we're gonna see the Russian forces also be put under a lot of pressure. So. I think this war is going to go on for, and I think what we have to then turn to is what's the Putin endgame here, right? And I think this is where, this was just a disastrous approach. And as we talked about in the beginning of the show, he had, I think he believed his own 
you know, what he was selling about Ukraine, about that Ukraine wouldn't fight. And he thought this would go very quickly. And now there's sort of no way for Russia to win this military. Mm-hmm. If they turn Kiev into Grozny and just destroy it, and then they put in a puppet leader, that leader is not going to be there very long. It's going to be impossible. You know, we're seeing protests, emergent cities that have been like, quote unquote, conquered by the Russians or have been taken by the Russians. So it's a military disaster for Russia at home. They're going to have to rebuild their military, but they're not going to have the economic wherewithal to do it because of sanctions. The economy is collapsing. Russians are fleeing. The oligarch class is really upset and annoyed. There's going to be a lot of Russian kids being sent home in body bags from Ukraine. That's going to cause a lot of political turmoil. So I think Putin has, this has created a huge problem for himself at home. So he is going to be looking for some faith-saving way out. I just, you know, see, see one. Right. And that certainly is his pattern in the past. You, you alluded to Grozny that, you know, when backed into a corner, he, he re-ups, he doubles down and, and becomes even more violent. I wanted to ask what you make of what we've seen, a, a kind of novel approach that the U.S. has applied here in terms of information warfare by disclosing so much more detailed information than we have in the past and past conflicts about Russians' plans and and operations even before they happen. And I mean, the old adage is that a lie makes it halfway around the world before the truth even gets its pants on. And so to some degree, I guess one could understand this as, hey, in a misinformation environment online, let's get out ahead of misinformation. But I wonder if it's really as simple as that. I mean, why are we seeing this shift in your mind? And do you expect more? Is this like the new normal of how things are going to have to be that we're going to have to call out what the plans are based on our intelligence even before it happens? Yeah, so this this shift, I think, has been really remarkable because this was a real frustration that I had when I was in, in government because, you know, we are very protective and very bureaucratic and rightly so of our sources and methods and of like, if something's classified, like you can't talk about it. And part of what, one of the portfolios I helped oversee at the State Department was the non-proliferation account, where we have a whole intelligence community devoted to tracking, you know, missile components that are, are being, you know, put on container ships and are being going to different ports. And we would call up a country and say, stop that uh, container ship and go to this, like, container vessel. Wow. And they, you know, those countries would be like, what are you talking about? Like, why? We like, because there's bad stuff on it. And they would say, we don't believe you. And we're like, trust us. And they were like, we don't trust you. And it was not, it's not always like an ally. And we were like, please. And so then we would like go back to the intelligence community and be like, can we please declassify what you have here so we can show them that we know what's, what's here. And most of the time the answer would be no. And this really hurt us in dealing with Russia and Russian disinformation. We remember back in 2014 when Russia seized Crimea, what it did is it took its its forces that were in Russian bases that were located in Crimea, and they just like left the base, took off their insignia. And these were just like, I don't know, people that came out of the woodwork. And these were quote unquote, little green men. Now we all knew in the US government who these people were, but it was classified. So, you know, there were the, we, we didn't release intel about what we knew Russia was doing. We were very slow about disclosing that Russian forces had actually crossed into Eastern Ukraine into the Donbass because that was all classified. So, you know, that's where sometimes the classification, you can be overly restrictive now of, of revealing information. And some of it for good cause, you don't want to expose people or your methods of how you actually hacked something and got some material. But a lot of times, like, it was obvious, like people knew that we could know this sort of information or you can change it a little bit. So it's disguised some ways. But there just wasn't a, a thought process of using Intel for public diplomacy purposes. That's mm. the basic gist. It was just like that wasn't a priority for the Intel community and better to have this like firm line. Well, something shifted, I think, in the past year. And the Biden administration did a heck of a job in really winning the information war here. Now, in 2014, it was somewhat contested about what was actually happening and what was actually taking place. This in this case, the Russians tried desperately to say that the Ukrainians had provoked this. The Ukrainians were committing war atrocities. The Ukrainians were attacking Russia. They put out these like BS videos. And the administration got a lot of shtick actually for before Russia started doing at a press conference or at a State Department press briefing saying like, look, 
you know, we know that Russia is going to create pretexts. And then they were like, how do you know this? This is all just conjecture. And then a week later it happened. So the administration was forward leaning in revealing what it knew to the world, revealing what it knew to its allies, getting people on the same page, preparing the world that Russia was going to do this. And like if Russia decided not to in the end of the day, everyone would be like, oh, America was so alarmist. But like, who cares, right? That we would have taken a little bit of, you know, some trolling on Twitter. But it, it ultimately the the sharing of information has meant that we know who the aggressor is, we know who to blame, and it has been, I think, real really remarkable. And I think it's going to be one of those things that like foreign policy has changed. I think because of this, because of what they've done in the last few months. It really is remarkable, and it it does seem to uh, it reflects a more sophisticated understanding of the importance of, of the information war, it, it, it's, it's a little reductive to call it the public relations war, because what we're really talking about is an old-fashioned George H.W. Bush rallying of allies around a common cause. And that is, it goes right back to what you were saying a moment ago. That has been and will continue to be our strength. And everything that you've been writing for more than a year now about the importance of building up European military cohesiveness and capabilities feeds right into this is that, you know, we need to, we need to strengthen the partners that we're calling on. And by kind of being information forward, see, that's a, that's a classy way of saying by putting our intel out on the street, by, by being so transparent in that way and, and strategically thoughtful about it. I think we've, we've let out and we, as you say, we have won that information warfare. And with that, I do want to ask you about the no-fly zone. This yeah. has been the most hotly contested, well, it's all been hotly contested, but it, as, the, as the decision to ban Russian oil imports has moved along and then essentially gotten made, the eye has really turned to, all right, what about a no-fly zone? Now, on the one hand, you have a group of 27 foreign policy heavyweights who signed an open letter to the president calling for a limited no-fly zone. And then on the other side, you've got Senator Marco Rubio, who said, sure, do that. That's the pathway to World War III. I don't like those choices very much. I don't think the American public does either. I I, I think the no-fly zone, it's very hard for people to understand why wouldn't we do this when we see images like the front page cover of the New York Times of civilians dying in a war zone and and thinking, well, we could prevent that. So where do you come down on this concept of a limited or even a full no-fly zone? Is is either argument kind of for or against more compelling in your mind? Yeah, so I, I think the first thing is, of course, everyone wants to put an end to the violence. And I think if if this were happening with a non-nuclear armed superpower as the aggressor, I think I would probably, I would be there on that letter saying we should do a no-fly zone to prevent, you know, to do what we can. But let's be clear about what a no-fly zone is and what you're saying. It it sounds very antiseptic, right? No-fly zone. It's just, you know, no one flies. No. What a no-fly zone is, is war with Russia. Because what it is, is that the U.S. Air, Air Force would then have to start doing patrols over Ukrainian airspace, in which point they would be put under threat, not only from Russian from Russian fighter jets, which they would have to engage, and we would, I think, succeed, but Russia has more of their fighter jets there than we, we do, so they would have, I think, some air dominance, and I think we would lose a lot of people. But it also means taking out the anti-air missiles on the ground. Russia has very sophisticated anti-air weapons, that would like be a real problem. So we would have to take out Russian forces on the ground. So what, what is that? That is war, right? That is us wow. sending American forces, American sons and daughters into combat to fight Russia. Now, if you could promise me that that would not escalate into a nuclear war, and if we all just said, we're gonna put our nukes to the side and we're just gonna have it out. Okay, but like, that's not what's happening. Well, that's not on the table. Right? Like this is reality where we have constraints on what we can do because this isn't Saddam Hussein, this isn't Assad, this is a, a country that has as many nuclear weapons as we have that can 30 minutes destroy in Boston, Washington, DC, 
uh, San Francisco. And you could say, oh, Putin would never do that. I mean, people said Putin would never invade Ukraine. So I, I, I don't think Putin would launch a nuclear strike, but what would, could happen is we then start seeing escalation. Okay, you're gonna send in your planes to attack our planes in Ukraine. Well, we're gonna fire a tactical nuclear weapon at Warsaw to, to warn you, you know, we told you not to. And so Warsaw is gone. Then what do we do, right? This is how nuclear escalation doesn't necessarily mean like it immediately the button, you know, someone presses a button. It could be that Russia decides that it's going to respond on NATO territory because we are respond, we are taking action on what they deem as, as their territory. And Putin has already signaled that this would, he would view this as potentially causing uh, a change in their nuclear threat level. We have to take this very seriously. It's not something to just sort of mess around with, particularly with an isolated, paranoid, autocratic leader that likely has a very cozy bunker somewhere in Moscow to withstand a nuclear blast. So I, I think people um, are getting a little over their skis, wanting to do something. And I think in some ways they are missing out on what we are actually doing, which is having a real impact, which is that we are doing a Berlin style airlift to provide actual usable weapons to the Ukrainians in terms of anti-armor, the Javelin missile, which is destroying Russian tanks and Russian vehicles, which is you know, doing damage to the Russian military, you know, stinger weapons that are anti-air, and also just things that allow the Ukrainians to maintain the fight. When you're in a fight, you need to just be resupplied. And that's what we're, we're, we're doing. And unfortunately, this is a tragic case where a big country is pinging on a small country. And because that big country can basically threaten a murder-suicide to the entire world, we have to stand back. And it sucks. And I think it's just something that we, as a as a country, though, need to recognize that we that that there are real escalatory risks, and we have to manage those as we go forward in providing our support to Ukraine in in how we engage in this conflict. Phenomenal answer, and it really does remind me of you know if if, if people want to read about the Cuban Missile Crisis, watch the movie Thirteen Days, a phenomenal movie. Read the the classic of foreign policy essence of decision to really get inside. You know, how you think through these things, and more importantly, how you don't let yourself get boxed into a set of Guns of August style decisions, the classic Barbara Tuckman book about the yeah. start of World War One, where it's like, well, we have to do this in order to remain credible. Well, then we th then they have to do that. And before you know it, you're in a world war. And one of the insights of John F. Kennedy was, no, no, we're not going to get dragged down that pathway, we have to be more creative. And that's what led to the, the the blockade, essentially, of Russian ships, which was a more creative way out in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it does sound like what you're calling for here is let's not get limited by very simple options of no-fly zone, no no-fly zone. Those are, those are options that we've tried in other conflicts in the past that don't apply here and that lead us down that pathway. So with that, I want to transition to my my final question to you. Let's say we take no fly zone off the table. What else do we have in our toolkit from here? We we've imposed the Russian oil ban. Clearly, we can prevail on our European allies to do more in terms of Russian oil, and we can work other sources of world supply to try and make up for the shortfall. There are other things that that we can do, but. But what are the what are the biggest candidates for sort of next steps to, to keep ratcheting up the pressure in lieu of a no-fly zone? Well, I think I think we have to also sort of understand that the steps we've taken have been incredibly strong. And I think part of on the military side, there's going to be everyone's going to look at sort of Jane's Defense Weekly and say, why don't we sort of send this advanced helicopter or other things? Has someone worked the kind of military portfolio portfolio, uh, portfolio the security system side for Ukraine? I can tell you that that we need to focus on nuts and bolts, practical things. That's what militaries need in a in time of crisis like this. Literally so nuts and bolts. bolts. Yeah, and or meals, right? Like right. you know, meals ready to eat, body armor, things that are just to maintain their operate. What they don't need are new fancy things that they have to read a manual about that then they have to figure out how to use. That you don't want to read a manual when you're being fired at. So. The time for that is, has sort of passed and we just have to accept that. And so, but what we're providing, I think is we're gonna to have to keep maintaining it. It might get harder to, to supply 
Ukraine as, as Russia maybe targets some of the convoys that are, are currently flowing. So I think that's one. I think the second thing is that we have already taken a sledgehammer to the Russian economy. So I think some of this is seeing how this plays out. And, and so I think we've done a lot of the really strong short-term steps. I think keeping the world united and keeping pressure on Putin, we've done a great job at the UN and other multilateral fora. I think we may need to put some more pressure on some of our allies, some of our partners in the Middle East, potentially India, who may have real problems. Get you know, India is dependent on the Russian defense industry to support their military. They may have some problems of getting Russian hardware now. If Russia is what's going to happen to the Russian defense industry? So that that's kind of in the short term that there's diplomatic steps. We've done the sanctions. We're uh, keeping keep going on the military side. I think the longer term thing, and this is where I'm really surprised, is rebuilding Europe militarily, which is like that is happening, and getting off fossil fuels, right? If Europe, it's not just about building LNG terminals. It is about Europe making a real pivot and doubling down on the clean energy revolution. And I think that's what we're about to see is, is that's happening, right? And that is going to be a massive transformation. And I think what it's gonna mean, I think this US needs to think about this in, in sort of geopolitical lens, is that Europe is going to be the global leader when it comes to the clean energy technology and infrastructure, because they're about to throw a massive amount of money to rapidly get off Russian gas and Russian oil. And I had sort of thrown that out there in a report a few months ago, uh, you know, six weeks ago, I thought, what should we do if Russia invades? I thought, well, it's sort of like a medium long-term, probably not gonna happen. No, it's happening. And what that would enable is that I think they're gonna take immediate steps that will enable them to reduce the reliance on Russian gas, which then will allow us to turn up the, the sanctions on the Russian oil and gas sector. But then over the medium to long-term, it will mean that they just don't need to buy it which will mean that Russia, who's built all these pipelines and infrastructure to, to supply gas to Europe, will be left with like useless infrastructure. And maybe they'll have to turn to China a bit more, but it's going to leave Russia really in the lurch and allow us to ratchet up sanctions. So I think the energy and climate side, and some of this is for us too, is that it's not, it is, we're not going to drill our way out of this. The way out is to actually have energy independence, which is not being dependent on a global commodity that is largely driven by autocratic states, whether it's Russia, Saudi Arabia, or the UAE, or Venezuela, but that can just be produced here at home. And the best way to do that is through renewables, which are now just as cheap. And it's one of those things that this is now just about deployment. It's just, we just need to spend the money to get the solar panels on the roofs and when, when and you know, there's more to it. But ultimately, I think we're going to see a real energy revolution come out of this crisis. And, and hopefully that has a real positive lasting legacy for climate and, and for us. Tremendous insights and, and analysis from uh, Max Bergman of the Center for American Progress, former State Department official. Max, you're providing a lot of helpful analysis as we go. And like we started the show saying, just events keep unfolding. That's the nature of time and, and space is that things do keep happening, but especially when it comes to the war in Ukraine. So for people to keep up with all of your analysis, where can they find you on Twitter? So I'm at, uh, at, at Max Bergman. So M-A-X-B-E-R-G-M-A-N-N, two N's at the end. So for, on video, we'll put that up on the screen and I'll put it in the show notes for the podcast. So I hope people will will follow you. I'll obviously be retweeting everything you do. I'm at Matt L. Robeson. And thanks so much for, for sharing all of your insights with us on Beyond Politics. It's, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 